So let's get cruising through what uh, we really do want you to walk away with, but I, I really do want this book to come alive for you and um, really uh, be a challenge to each, each of us personally. So title. Can somebody guess the title? Jeremiah. Yes, it's Jeremiah. Go figure. Yes, it bears the title of the author who wrote it. Now, the author who wrote it, if you look at Jeremiah 5160, Jeremiah wrote this, <clears throat> but he also had uh, Baruch, who was his scribe, and that's found in... Um, Jeremiah 36, 1 through 4, Jeremiah 30, 36, uh, 27 through 32, and 45, 1 through 5. So Jeremiah uses a scribe to create his scrolls, okay, and to write his writings that he can share. And he wrote Jeremiah by Jeremiah's dictation. Jeremiah was dictating to Baruch basically what God was giving him as his words, right? Um, so the author, obviously, Jeremiah. Date. The date, you have a date line, and down below you have another date line. Just go down to the below one after the purpose. We'll come back up to purpose. The date of this book covers from 627 B.C., okay, and that's found in verse uh, chapter 1, 2, 586 B.C., going from uh, 3 all the way out to 44, and then 561 B.C., okay? So the writings of this book covers a major time span, and it covers from basically the time Jeremiah was called in the 13th year of King Josiah, and it goes all the way until they were uh, hauled off into captivity and also talks about the fact that Jeremiah was bound and hauled off to uh, basically Egypt. Um, so this is a, a long book. And the purpose, the purpose of this book was so that Jerusalem will be destroyed by the Babylonians. God told them this, that Jerusalem would be destroyed by the Babylonians because of Judah's spiritual adultery. Nevertheless, Yahweh's rule is assured through the new and Davidic covenants. So I'll repeat it one more time. Actually, you guys have this. I wrote it for you because I wanted it to move fast. So very nice. Yes, I just said, we've got so much to cover. I'm jealous of Gary and Joshua. They had two weeks for Jeremiah. And I'm teaching, and Wes is teaching the high school tonight. And I understand, Kate, Wes felt the same way. We needed two weeks for Jeremiah, to be honest with you. And, and really, this is a book you could spend, you could spend years in, right? All right, the outline. You know what, before we get to the outline, <clears throat> I just think it'd be uh, just a good approach to try to look at Josiah and under, uh, Josiah, Jeremiah, and understand the environment and the context in which he's writing and what God is bringing to Jeremiah to share. So I want you to realize, Jeremiah, when he's born, Okay. Remember, he went. This book is when he was called by God in the thirteenth year of Josiah. Okay. Now he was a young man. Josiah was a young man, or Jeremiah was a young man when he was called. He could have been around twenty-five, even thirty. You know, there was speculation that he could be thirteen or fourteen, but really, the the 
the attitude that you're seeing in Jeremiah when he says, I'm a young man, I can't do this. It kind of echoes to what Moses said. I don't have the words to say. I don't speak eloquently. This was Jeremiah being humbled by God, being called as a young man. He was young, but he wasn't so young where someone would not listen to him. Okay, so chances are he's around 25 years old. But, you know, that's speculation. We're not sure. We know he served for 43 years. So we know he couldn't be 40 plus or 50 plus. You know, he's a young man. Now, when he was born, he's born into a time after Israel, the nation Israel. Remember, the kingdom had divided. The kingdom had divided. When he was born, Israel has, has been long gone, almost 90 years Okay, so Israel went into captivity in 722 B.C., and this is 627. So 90 years earlier, Israel, in their disgusting ways, God had them hauled off by the Assyrians. So when Jeremiah was born, he was born into this kingdom where Judah was the only remnant there, or only kingdom that existed that stood for God, and it did not stand for God. Okay, it was apostate. It was horrible. There was this tariff holes. There was Baal worship. Um, people were going their own ways and doing what's right in their own eyes, right? And a year before God called Jeremiah to preach and basically proclaim his word as a prophet, Josiah <clears throat> asked a man named Hilkiah to get the funds together. I'll make the funds happen. I need you to clean the temple. Let's repair the temple. Let's fix it up. It's in disarray. Josiah was a man of God. He didn't do evil like his father did. So when Josiah was, had his men or had the priest cleaning the temple, lo and behold, they found the book of the law. Pretty sad, isn't it? This is the situation that Jeremiah was born in, is a nation where they didn't have the book of the law even in the temple. And they had to find it because they were cleaning. Pretty sad, pretty sad situation. Now, we remember from Deuteronomy 17, 18, it was a command that a king make a copy of the book of the law and keep it next to him so he could have wisdom and pass judgment correctly. OK, so just Josiah, when he read this, he was broken and he reformed the nation. He tore down the Asherah poles. He ripped the Baal worship altars on the high places down. All these green trees for Asherah were gone. He got rid of all this. He began to get rid of it. Matter of fact, Josiah even went into Israel, okay, where the Assyrians had control and ripped down altars there. So he, Josiah was a great man. So, as I said, a year after Josiah started making these reforms, Jeremiah is called out to be a prophet. And what's his prophecy? Babylon is going to attack. We are going to be destroyed. You will all be killed. And, and the ones that are not killed will be hauled off to exile. Not a great message when reform had just came. So the people didn't take him seriously, didn't, didn't look at his words with what they should have. And we can see, and, and I love how this was put by John MacArthur, we can see that Josiah was nearly more of a celebrity king with a charismatic attitude. 
And why he believes this, and I, I agree, because what happens as soon as Josiah dies? They go apostate again. So with Josiah there, they were, they were great. They were leading reform. They were changing. They were listening to the priests and the prophets. Things were changing in Judah. But once Josiah's gone, back to the same old way. How did Josiah get killed? If you remember, he wanted to go and fight Necho II, which was the pharaoh of Egypt, who had went to battle to go try to take advantage of Assyria getting a little weak. Let's go take him out at the Battle of Carchemish. And on his way, well, Josiah thinks he's going to go out and meet him and beat him because he thinks he can do it. Not so much. He disguises himself because he wants to fight so bad. He disguises himself as a regular soldier instead of his kingly garb, right? Takes an arrow, hits him pretty. It's a mortal wound. They rush him back to Jerusalem. He dies. He dies. He got killed or shot in, Je in the Jezreel Valley at Megiddo, right? Famous place. It'll be famous again, right? Armageddon. So this is where he dies. And Josiah or Jeremiah does remember him in a lament. Uh, God asks him to do that. And I'm sure we're going to learn more about lamenting and lamentations. And that's next week. So be prepared for that. Lee's teaching next week. And it's going to be great. Um, so when Necho was on his way back, he dethroned the uh, existing king that came to power, which was Jehoaz, which was uh, uh, Josiah's son. He was evil, though. He only lasted three months. This is the chaos that Jeremiah's in. Now, Jeremiah was the son of Hilkiah. When you read this, this is not the same Hilkiah that found the book of the law for Josiah. It's just a different uh, Hilkiah. Okay. So um, we also know that Jeremiah, he's known as the weeping prophet. So if you guys would, and if you would go with me to uh, chapter 9, verse 1. And I'll give you the other two passages, but I thought we could read this one together. So 9 verse 1, it says, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. So you can see here, and there's also a passage in uh, Jeremiah 13, 17 and Jeremiah 14, 17. Now, your handouts, I gave you some room on the back, on the last page, for notes like this, if you guys want to keep notes like that. Because we'll come back to this outline, okay? But I wanted to kind of set up what Jeremiah is up against, okay? All right, some of the things that Jeremiah endured while he was a prophet, he was beaten. Uh, if we look at uh, the analogies he was giving uh, from the potter house, uh, which is in Jeremiah 18 and 19, he was told by God to go to the potter's house. And while he was there, the potter had a pot that went awry. It was not good. And the potter made a new pot out of it. That was an analogy of Judah. 
You've went awry, I'll make you new. He also was told, buy a fancy pot, take it out by the gate, bring all the leaders with you, and smash it, because I'm going to destroy you. And that's what God is saying to Judah. That did not go well. <laughs> and uh, he was put in prison for that uh, in stocks. What's really hilarious, and you wonder if the, if the way it was written if the stocks included a way where it kept him silent because he wasn't he wasn't speaking because we know as soon as he's out of the stocks he's right back at it telling them once again god has said you will be destroyed you will be hauled off to babylon and they didn't like it so they set out to have him killed he also came under a, a death sentence in tw uh, chapter 26 it's serious this is not hey let's kill this guy that, that's not what was going on. They seriously wanted to kill him. But God had given a, a protection order to Jeremiah, and, and you can see that in Jeremiah 26, 7 through 11. God said, Jeremiah, speak my words. I will protect you. Now, this was serious enough that his contemporary, another prophet at that time, whose name Uriah, Uriah actually was in prison, and actually, excuse me, they went to kill Uriah, he found out about it. Uriah escaped to Egypt. Home free, right? He's home free. No. Evil King Jehoiakim gets his band of boys together and sends them to Egypt to drag him back just so he can kill him. Okay? Just so he could have the pleasure of killing him firsthand or at least seeing him killed firsthand in front of him. So as you see, Jeremiah faced many trials uh, to bring God's word to the people. Uh, many writers and theologians have looked at the uh, descriptions that Jeremiah uses for the death and destruction that came to Israel. And they go, this guy saw it firsthand. He saw it firsthand. And when you're reading through the, the Jeremiah, and some of you have already read it, it, doesn't it hit you when he says the young men were buried in, or stacked in piles in the field like seafs of wheat? You, know, you, just, you can just picture it. And then it says they were just left there as dung on the ground. You know, And we've seen other wars like that. You look at uh, the wars that happened in World War I, there were so many bodies that France couldn't bury them. They just left the men to decompose out in the fields. And they still find remnants of that battle today. I mean, so you can see the horrific things that uh, Jeremiah saw. So I just kind of wanted to bring that to you to just kind of bring this to light. Now, back to your outline. Um, outline Roman number one. Chapter one is Jeremiah's call. So if you want to see and read about the call of Jeremiah by God, just read chapter one. Okay, Roman number two. Uh, chapters 2 through 45. This is all about Ju uh, Jeremiah's prophecy. And you can break it down here into uh, A is uh, chapters 2 through 25. You already have it written on your handout, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Condemnation of Judah. B is the conflicts of Jeremiah. That's what chapters 26 through 29 are about. My favorite part in all of this was 30 through 33. I don't know why, but I camped on those chapters a while. I really enjoyed those. Um, that is coming restoration. I think I like good news better than bad news. 
All right, 34 through 35, the collapse of Jerusalem. And then 46 through 51, this is the Gentiles' prophecy. So all these apostate nations, you'll see that it, it's really kind of funny when you get into those. It's pretty much the same message for every nation. They just change the name. <laughs> Plug in a new name, you're going to get the same thing, okay? Um, Jerusalem's fall is chapter 52, all right? So that would be Roman numeral four, sorry, at the bottom. Jerusalem's fall. The theme, the theme of Jeremiah is it's a warning, the last hour, and it's repentance with comf confrontation. I, I think it's beautiful that God actually provided a warning to his people. And those that believed did what Jeremiah said to do. And one of the crazy things that Jeremiah said to do, don't stay, go to Babylon, surrender. Not only did he say, don't stay, God told him this. God told Jeremiah, and I'm missing my notes, and please forgive me. He told Jeremiah, tell the people, not only go with Nebuchadnezzar, but go and build houses. Go get married. Not only that, he said, look out for the welfare of Babylon, because its welfare will affect your welfare. That's how far they were to go. Now, prideful, prideful Jews or prideful Judeans stayed, and they were wiped out, okay? So if we go on to the next part, and this is the major themes. I have these written out for you, and I'm, I'm, I'm rushing through some of these things because I want to spend some time on other topics, if you can't tell. So major themes. The first one there is Yahweh's sovereignty, or excuse me, Yahweh, the sovereignty of Yahweh. Let's look at just um, chapter 1, verse 10. So if you guys would turn there together with me. And there's several passages. I think there's 42 passages here that we could have for sovereignty of God. And I should have put those in your notes. Please forgive me for that. So Jeremiah 1, verse 10, See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. I just, that verse just rings sovereignty. If you want to know why a nation rises, God. You want to know why it falls? God. You want to know why it, it survives and is blessed? God. It's all about his plan. Do we understand it fully? No. We know that the evil prosper and it confuses us. But that's our view. We don't see what our Father God sees. And we have to submit to that. All right. The next one is uh, sin and judgment. And basically, I'll have you write these out. Sin and judgment is all through chapters 2 to 29, chapters 34, chapter 38, and chapter 39. And you see this throughout. The, 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 the people are sinning. They're compared to a woman who's adulterous who's sleeping around and sleeps with every person that comes by, that's what they're compared to. They're compared to a ton of things, and I want to get to those later. We also see the next one is false prophets. The false prophets are in chapter 5, verses 30 and 31. 
chapters 14, 13 through 16. That's verses 13 through 16. Chapter 23, 9 through 40. And chapter 27 and tw uh, through 29. All about the false prophets. Okay. Uh, four is the persecution of Jeremiah. And those are seen... In so many verses, I'm going to leave them out. But if you want to look, uh, persecution on Jeremiah, you could go to chapter 1, 18 through 19. You know what? I'll just take the time and give you the passages. Uh, chapter 11, 18 through 21. Chapter 20, uh, verses 1 and 2. 26. You may want to camp on that chapter for a while. It's a good one. 7 through 24. 36, 1 through 26. 37, 13 through 16, and 38, 1 through 6, and last, 43, 1 through 4. Uh, it also talks about the future restoration of Judah and Israel. Okay? It talks, Jeremiah preaches, and God gives him the words to talk about a unified country, a unified Israel. Not a divided country, a blessing of both of them restored. And uh, obviously that's seen in the one we read in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 10. But um, three, uh, chapter 3, 11 through um, 4, verse 2. Chapter 12, verse 15. Chapter 16, 14 through 15. 23, 1 through 8. 24, 4 through 7. 30, verses 1 through 33. Um, excuse me, 30, verse 1 through 33, verse 26, and then last, 46, 27 through 28. Um, it also talks about the new covenant. We can see the new covenant revealed in Jeremiah in chapter 31. Um, we look at the uncircumcised heart, and this is in chapters 4, verse 4, 6, verse 10, 9, uh, 25 through 26. I don't know about you guys, but as I read through Jeremiah and the first nine or ten chapters, I got this feel. It was just like, because all you hear about is heart, heart, heart. It's about the heart. It's about your uncircumcised heart. And I just got this sense. You could hear Jesus Christ saying, you've heard it said, but I tell you, you know, because they said, well, you've heard it said it's wrong to murder. Right. But God, Christ takes it deeper. He says, if you hate your brother, you've committed murder. I've heard you. I've, you've heard it said adultery. Right. But I'm telling you, if you have lust in your heart, you just hear Christ in these verses. These first 10, this call to repentance and make it a heart issue, not an obedience of I'm doing my sacrifices and I'm giving my tithes and I'm, you know, going to the temple to pray. No, it was all about heart. And you can see that in the examples of the un uncircumcised heart, uh, the old covenant. You can see this in chapter 11, one through 13, the nations that's chapter one, 25. And obviously the last few chapters there, 46 through 51, and that's their condemnation, right? They're getting their just due. <clears throat> and then, uh, experience of Jeremiah. So once again, what's really cool about Jeremiah and I gave you the paper on the, once again, uh, the chiastic, right? 
for the Greek word or Greek letter chi, it looks like an X. I think we go through this just about every week. But the book of Jeremiah, the scroll of Jeremiah, completed work, I will say, is chiastic in structure. You can see that it's a parallel chiastic that section A parallels section A down below. So when you read up above chapters one, uh, one through three, echo exactly 52, one through 34. And you can see the parallels in B to B. So if you go uh, chapter one, verse four through 1025, that echoes 36, one through 45, verse five. And you can see Jeremiah is appointed over the nations to declare God's judgment against them. And then you can see the contrast or the result of that and later in Jeremiah, Jeremiah declares God judgment against the nations, including Egypt, Edom, Moab, all the other places. Right. So you see this chiastic structure. It's awesome. I mean, it's really cool how that's put together. So if when you go to study Jeremiah, have this sheet with you. Very, it really is helpful. OK, I don't think we need to explain much more, but you can see at the center I love this. At the very center, remember chiastic structure, the center is the main point or the, the point that the writer wants to get across, okay? And this is inspired writing, so God wants to get this across, okay? It's hope. It's a future hope. And you see this change in Jeremiah's shifting at about this time in 29 verse 11. That's usually misquoted, right? I know the plans I have for you, right? A lot of folks want to say, well, God has plans to prosper me. I'm supposed to get a great job and I'm supposed to make lots of money. No, no. You know, principally, yes, God wants you to enjoy this life and have life full and abundant. But honestly, it does come with suffering. We're called to suffer. We're, we're called to die. Take up your cross, right? But uh, so it's misquoted. But the center of this, God was bringing hope to Judah. Not only Judah, but Israel. As Israel was in captivity in Assyria, okay? So this was bringing hope to all of his people. Key chapters. Ch key chapters. Um, let me look at your notes. Make sure I keep on the same page with you. You guys already have this. Uh, Jeremiah's call in chapter 1. Chapter 23. Really important. Uh, this is the wicked shepherds. And then God says, I am going to bring my righteous branch, David. I am going to put David on the throne. That's what it says. And we know that it's the son of David, the lineage of David, David, and it's Christ. Chapter 23. 25. Um, Judah's future judgment through Babylon and the 70 years of captivity and spelling it out 70 years 30 return and restoration chapters 31 and 32 like I said those were my favorite to read uh, the new covenant Jeremiah in prison he buys a field God explains that it's really cool I'm hoping we can get to that we have plenty of time that's what I'm saving it for Chapters 34 and through 44, the fall of Jerusalem, and the last key chapter, chapter 52, the destruction of Jerusalem. Key passages are uh, chapter 1, 4 through uh, 10, 
And it's basically about the foreknowledge of God. I knew you. Okay, the calling of Jeremiah. God knew Jeremiah before the foundations of the earth. This is not a surprise, okay? Uh, passage 29, verse 10, and that's the promised restoration of Judah, or Israel, the nation, okay? So, what I want to look at is let's do some of the interpretive challenges, and I only want to do a couple of those because I want to save time for some other things that I want to do. So, and since I'm teaching, I get to pick, right? <laughs> That's how it works. All right, literary structure. The uh, chiastic structure comes under criticism. Why do you think the chiastic structure would come under criticism of Jeremiah uh, and the book of Jeremiah? Anyone? It does. It, it hints of a single author. It does. It hints of a single conflict about that yeah it hints of a single author and you got to remember let's go back to our chiastic um, structure right you guys have your chiastic structure form pull it out there okay let's get critical here and what's funny is I lost my passage that I wanted us to go to all right Oh, I've got it. Sorry. Uh, so if we look at the chiastic structure and we see what's going on in Jeremiah, you see the chiastic structure. Tell me what's going on. Come on. Use your critical thinking. Where are we going? Why would you be a critic of the chiastic structure if you looked at this and said, this is prophecy? I'm giving you a hint. So this could have been written after this all happened. Thank you. That's what's in question. They're saying this is written after the fact. Of course, Jeremiah looks like the greatest prophet ever. He had this book written by his scribe after it all happened. And he said these things would happen. But really, he just wrote them after the fact. That's the argument. Okay. It's full of holes. Okay, that argument's full of holes. It's junk. And really, I love the fact that the scripture pretty much answers itself on this. Um, if you remember in chapter 36 in your readings, and we look in Jehoiakim, he's a little angry. Okay, I'm not going to read all of chapter 36, but you may go there to your Bible and you can look at the title, right? Jehoiakim is going to burn Jeremiah's scroll. He's mad, okay, because God told Jeremiah, he said, Jeremiah, go get a scroll. Go get ink and write it down. And write this scroll and give the leaders of Judah, give the priest, give the king these words. And it was pretty much, you're going to die. Okay? I'm shortening chapter 36 for you. And he says, you're going to die. And Jehoiakim gets this copy after the priests read it. And uh, they read it and they went, hey, uh, Jeremiah um, um, and Baruch, because Baruch was there. Actually, it was Baruch that brought the scroll. He sa they said, um, you guys better go hide. You better get away. Because when we share this with the king, he's not going to be happy. Okay? So... That was very gracious. Actually, it was a fulfillment of God's promise that he would protect Jeremiah through all these prophecies, right? So they hid, 
King Jehoiakim reads it, and you can see in this passage, he's cutting the scroll, and he's cutting it up, and he's burning it, and he's throwing it away. And he reads more, and he cuts it up, and he reads it, and he throws it away. And he continues this till he's read the whole thing, and then he says, where's Jeremiah and Baruch? Because he wants them, and he can't find them. But the point is, I love how God in his own word shows that Jeremiah was writing individual scrolls. This was probably a text that was brought together by Baruch after Jeremiah's death. But it was with scrolls that were already solidified, known in the minds of the people. We have to remember, Jeremiah is considered a major prophet. He's held in very high regard. He's held in high regard at the level of Isaiah, okay? And you think of that and you go, why? If they believe he wrote it after the fact, no, they don't believe he wrote it after the fact. So not only do we have evidence that he wrote individual scrolls based in time to teach them exactly what God was prophesying, we know that the people held him in high regard because when they were hauled off to captivity, what were they thinking? 70 years. 70 years, and I should have been listening. Okay? So chiastic structure does not take away from the point at all that, that Jeremiah was told by God what would happen, and exactly that did happen. Yes, Scott. This was a major point that I tried to research in grad school history. Uh, even the uh, progressive religious history professor at Sam Houston State in Texas took for granted that these books had to have been written during or after the captivity, and, but he couldn't produce a, a single art. He had no argument at all. It was taken for granted that it was true. Yeah, I would, I would grant the fact that the book was written probably during captivity. Because, of course, it was written with the effects of what of judgment that fell on Judah, right? And Jerusalem specifically. Um, so, obviously, the book was written post that. But there has to be those writings and those testimonies of Jeremiah before that are solidified in the minds of the people. They knew what he said. And they held him in high regard. You know, I relate this. I, as I thought through it, I thought, you know, in today's world, <laughs> oh, my goodness, you say something publicly, you're on YouTube, you're on this channel, you're on that channel, they got a copy of this. They can replay everything we said, right, Scott? I mean, that's what we see. I believe that's what happened here. I believe Jeremiah did have, I personally believe Jeremiah had other scrolls. I can't prove it in the scripture, but we do see the scroll that he wrote to go to Jehoiakim that was burned. It wouldn't surprise me. He was writing what, he was having Barak scribe for him this whole time. There had to be multiple scrolls that were brought into one. Okay? It doesn't make sense from what I've seen of people for a book to pop out of nowhere from an author nobody knew, claiming to have been there throughout all of it, through thick and thin. Right. Especially if veterans of that war were still around. Exactly. You know, and they were only there 70 years. And yet he was, he was held in high regard by those who went early. And you go, hold up. You're only going to get held in high regard if they remember the prophecy you told them before they were taken. Right. Yeah, I, I would agree. 
So to me, the chiastic structure and its literary or interpretive challenge, it just doesn't hold water, guys. It just does not hold water. There's no challenge, in my opinion. That, that's not a challenge. Okay. Um, write this man, Kanaya, childless. I'm going to quickly cover this one because it doesn't deserve a lot of time. Uh, remember, this was a man who was uh, Jeconiah. He's in Matthew chapter 11. Uh, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 1. And you can see it in the lineage of Jesus. And the curse that was on him, right? The curse was that he would never, according to Jeremiah chapter 22, 24 through 30, his child would never sit on the throne. Okay? Well, Jesus is in that lineage. He would be considered his child. But we know that Jesus was born of a virgin. Jesus does not physically trace his lineage back to Jeconiah. He traces it not through Solomon, down to Jeconiah, he's actually through Nathan, and down through to Joseph, or, or excuse me, on Mary's side, he goes from Nathan down. So Jesus is a child physically by Mary and the conception of the Holy Spirit, but through the clean branch of David, not through the corrupted branch of David. So that was one that it's for us that believe in the virgin birth, and how can you be a believer and not believe in the virgin birth? It's not an interpretive issue. Personal challenge, personal opinion there. Okay, 70-year captivity. 70-year captivity comes under attack for interpretive issue because it wasn't exactly 70 years. Um, they were hauled off. The, the captivity started in 605. Well, we know. Let me just put it this way. We know that the king came to power in Babylon in 605 B.C., and we know that they were returned in, uh, in 537. And if you do the math, it's 68 years, two years short, okay? And so the, there's been all kinds of answers to this. Is it symbolic? Is it an approximate? Okay, is it, well, it's about 70 years. And when Jeremiah, if, if you were a Jew and you heard 70 years, what would come to your mind? 70. Larry. I'd say 70 years. 70 years came, comes to your mind. Is there a passage that comes to your mind, maybe? Uh-uh. Psalms 90, verse 10. Would you guys look that up with me, please? And this is, uh, you know, <clears throat> a prayer of Moses, right? And we can see here, it says in verse 10, the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. In other words, the average guy lives 70 years. But maybe if he's strong and he's health, healthy, he'll live 80. Okay? So when it, it is, it, it could be a lifetime, right? Symbolically, if you heard this as a Hebrew and this was in your mind, but they don't even have the book of the law. Uh, <laughs> I have a hard time believing it, but basically, yeah, it is a lifetime, a span of a life. So is it approximate? I believe it's literal, okay? Now, we have to realize that in ancient times, with the way the years uh, fell, and I'm just going to read this, okay? One of the guys that we use, and it's a great resource, and I'm going to just plug it a little bit, is uh, you can do a browse search. Just look up uh, theology resources, 
And uh, the professor that we're using, you know, we're just standing on the giants of others, right? Standing on the shoulders of other giants. Professor Essex, uh, you can actually find his material in there. It's under uh, the Old Testament studies. And um, this is his take, okay? Uh, the ancient reckoning of the years means any part of the year counts as a full year. Now, we saw that with the three days in the tomb, right? Kind of the same thing, right? So it says the Babylonian New Year started in September and ended in August. Therefore, if the exile started in early summer 605 and the start of the return trip was early spring 537 with the arrival of Jerusalem in uh, 538, um, the counting the year of 605 on one end and five other, 538 on the other, 70 years. Now, that's Professor Essex's take. There's also, um, if, you, if you look at it, they stay in Babylon to fulfill the word of the Lord until the land. Um, actually, that's another topic. Excuse me. I'm going to back up a little bit. So, so you can see that even then it can fit the 70 year model. But let's look at let's look at something real quick, because I do believe it's literal. OK, Second Chronicles, if you guys would turn with me there. Second Chronicles 36, 21 through uh, 22. Here it says, I'm going to back up a little bit. Let's go to uh, verse 20 and we'll read down through. Uh, he took into exile Babylon those who had escaped from the sword and they came, became servants to him and to the sons and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths all the days that it lay desolate to keep Sabbath to fulfill how many years? Seventy, 70 years. And I agree. This is another view of Professor Essex that basically God looked at the period of time from the time they came in to settle the land until the time he said, enough, I'm bringing the rod. You've had my staff. I've led you. I'm bringing the rod for discipline. Okay. And God looked at those years, which is about 700 and some, right? And said, you've missed Sabbath 70 times. And Sabbath didn't mean Sabbath Sunday, Sabbath Saturday, right? Didn't mean Friday sundown, right? Didn't mean that. Didn't mean that. What it meant was every seven years, you would let the land rest. You would allow it to rest. You would stop your work. You would turn and go to the temple and you would learn from the priests. You would study God's word and you would become, you would try to, uh, to grind God's word into your life during that time when you were laying your ground fallow. We still have farmers today that leave their grounds fallow every seven years. They follow biblical principles on this, not strict Sabbath rules, but this field might lay fallow and this field might be producing over here. Now, this was a mandate for the entire country every seven years. So what should they have been doing during those seven years? Saving enough to survive through the Sabbath year. What motivated them not to follow it? Money. It costs you to follow God. Okay? But not only that, they didn't care anymore. 
They were so apostate and had uh, prostituted themselves so badly, they didn't care about the Sabbath Sunday. So God said, I'm going to hold you accountable to it. I'm going to haul you off to Babylon. I'm going to haul you off to Assyria. And I'm going to lay that land fallow for 70 years. And you can come back. I believe it's literal. Okay, Lee. You also have that supplement in Daniel chapter 9. Yes. Are you, if you're going to go there. No, go ahead. No, I was just going to say he knows that that 70 years is coming to an end. Yes. Praying what happens after this. Yeah. And that's when he gets his great vision. But he took the 70 years as literal. As literal. Yeah, because he said it's coming to an end. Now, let's let's repeat that, Lee, so they can hear it. But basically, you're, you're referencing Daniel chapter 9 right. and the prayer of Daniel. And he's looking forward to the fact that restoration is coming. So if it was approximate, why would he be looking? He wouldn't know what the years are. If he was thinking it was symbolic, well, does it mean 700 years or does it mean 7,000 years? It's not symbolic. It's literal. Yeah, it just makes sense to be literal. Okay. Um, you know what? There's other interpretive challenges here. I have them listed for you. And just because of time, I do want to give you guys some time for fellowship. So we'll probably get done about 7.15 tonight. But uh, the other one is a woman will encompass a man. That's a challenge in chapter 31, verse 22. There's been speculation about a, uh, a virgin with child proposed by Jer uh, Jerome. Uh, that was an early thought. No, um, really, I think what it, it, it really sounds like to me in that passage is you look at the passages around it and the images that God is creating and the contrast that God has begin, been having is a husband and wife relationship. He being the good husband, Judah being the horrible wife. I think this is an echo of it says that uh, a woman will encircle, but it also could be uh, um, interpreted as embracing arms around. OK, fully enveloping. In other words, a, a view of that Israel finally is embracing their savior, their Lord, their God. OK. I believe that's what it is. And when you read through it, I believe it, you're just going to see that. It's just going to come ring true. One of the interpretive challenges, though. Um, the new covenant relationship with the church, that is a massive interpretive challenge that I'm going to set aside tonight um, in favor of some other things, okay? And I don't think they're bad things. I think you guys will enjoy them. Okay, some of the really, I, I call them beautiful stories or analogies that are in Jeremiah that just, wow, they're just so cool. As you read them, you just, it's really neat. Um, this one's a sad one, though, is Jeremiah or God compares the other nations against Judah. He actually uses the other nations to condemn Judah and their practice. God says in chapter 2, verse 11, Judah, you're like no other. You actually, you don't add a God to your pantheon of believers. I think that's how Essex put it. But you actually got rid of one. Me. I mean, even the other nations don't do that. They were so apostate, they gave up the living God for stone and wood. No nation does that. They, they don't give up their national identity. It doesn't happen. It did in Judah. 
Okay, also God compares the nation of Judah to broken cisterns. And I did a little bit of research on this, and actually Lisa led me down this trail. This was really good. Did a little research, and um, cisterns were a common practice for storage of water, especially in Jerusalem and the surrounding hill country. And the reason why is they have the Jordan River, but it's a distance away and it's downhill. Okay. There's really no natural water. There is a spring. There are springs that are near there, but not enough to fulfill the need of a city and the water needs. And we know there's a spring near there because Hezekiah, remember when he was told by the prophet, because he had went and shown these people from a foreign country, long ways away, all the storehouses, showed him everything, all the gold, everything. And the prophet said, you know what? Someday they're going to return and they're going to take it all. Well, Hezekiah took that to heart. He built a tunnel from a spring to bring water into Jerusalem. So if they were sieged, and we'll talk about that, if they were sieged, they could at least have water. Okay. So, but what's really interesting is the fact that God compared them to cisterns. And when he said this, they knew what he was talking about. Okay. It would be like comparing Greeley to cattle, right? We know what cattle are about here in Greeley. We smell them every day. We taste them every week, right? We know. He used an analogy that the people knew. Did you know that the average rainfall in Jerusalem is only a half inch to inch less than London, England? Did you realize that? 23 and a half inches of rainfall a year in Jerusalem. 24 to 24 and a half in London, England in a year. The difference is Jerusalem only gets it for four months. England gets it all 12 months. I looked it up. England gets about a little less than three inches average per month for the entire year. Israel, or specifically Jerusalem, gets it just during the winter months. That's it. And they're done. The, you should look at the rain scale. It just goes to like zero. No rain for months on end. So the people had to build cisterns that were covered and protected to keep that fresh water fresh so that they would have water to drink later. In, in um, chapter 2, God compares himself to a fountain of living water, a fountain that never stops, a spring that they have turned their backs on this spring that's bringing fresh water all the time for cisterns, which isn't so fresh, and they're broken, and it's not holding water. It's a beautiful analogy. Just It blew my mind once we started looking into it and saying, what's this cistern thing all about, and why is it so popular? Uh, heart matter. I just, I, I, once again, I said this earlier, just the uh, exchanges of the fact of a circumcised heart in chapter 4, verse 4, 6, verse 10, 9, 25 through 26, you can see echoes of the coming heart change that is required for the believer, right? That's brought on by the Holy Spirit. You see that that's the root of the problem for Judah. They have a bad heart. And they need a new one. They need a heart of flesh. The linen, the story of the linen in Jeremiah 13, 1 through 11. Um, basically what God says is he tells Jeremiah, 
take a linen cloth, put it around your waist, a bright white one, clean, brand new, wear it before the people, then take it and go and hide it near the Euphrates. So he does. He travels, hides it. God says, okay, Jeremiah, go retrieve it now. So he goes back and he goes to retrieve it. And this linen rag is worthless is what the Bible says. Good for nothing. Yeah. You can't wrap it around your waist anymore. It's got holes. It's brown. The bugs and bacteria have eaten it. It's really funny. They actually are using that same thing to say how well your garden is. You're supposed to put a rag in your garden, and if it disintegrates quickly, you got a good garden. Okay? But um, basically, he brought that back, and it was an analogy to the fact that God was going to take the people of Judah, lift them out, hide them near the Euphrates. That's where Babylon was, near Babylon. But when they come out, they're going to be ragtag band, right? They're going to have holes in them. No, not very many left. It's not going to be the amount of people who left. It'll be a few, a remnant. Okay? That was the analogy. But the beautiful thing is the fact of God's goodness and the fact that there would be a remnant that comes back. That takes me to one of my other favorite stories in Jeremiah, and that's his prayer. And I want to read that with you guys. So if you guys would turn with me, we'll go back to Jeremiah. Jump out of Chronicles there. And we're going to go to Jeremiah chapter 32. And this one hit home for me because in our recent study on uh, Saturday morning with uh, Shepherd Theologian Min and our study there, uh, Travis was sharing with us that there's, there's two ways to um, basically kind of try to get your hands around God. That's all I'll say for now, and then we'll read the prayer. Okay, so chapter 32, verse 16 through 25, and we'll go there, and it says, After I had given the deed of the purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord, saying, Ah, Lord God, is it you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm? Nothing is too hard for you. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of, of fathers to their children after them. O oh, great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, great in counsel, Mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. You have shown signs and wonders in the land of Egypt and to this day in Israel and among the mankind and among all mankind and have made a name for yourself to at, as at this day. You brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with strong hand and outstretched arm, with great terror. You have gave them this land, which you swore to their fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk, of, milk and honey. And they have entered and took possession of it. But they did not obey your voice or walk in your law. They did nothing of all your commands uh, all you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have made all this disaster come upon them. Behold the siege mounds. They have come up to the city to take it. 
And because of sword and famine and pestilence, the city is given into the hands of Chaldeans who are fighting against it. What you spoke has come to pass. Behold, you see it. Yet you, O Lord God, have said to me, buy the field for money and get witnesses? Though the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans. I, I love this passage, and I'm going to tell you why. Because it exposes that, that view of how to get your hands around God, how to study or do theology proper, okay? The study of God. Because if you look at this, this, the whole story, Jeremiah is told by God, go buy a field. Huh? Go buy a field? What do you mean by a field? Judah, guys, you need to realize this is during the siege. This is during the siege that has befallen J Jerusalem. That means that Babylon <laughs> controls Judah. They control Judah from the line at Israel or near the town of Samaria all the way down to Negev. They control it all. And the only thing they don't have in their possession is the jewel on top. And that's Jerusalem. And they have besieged the city. They own it all. They own the land. And God says, Jeremiah, go buy some land. Who's he got to buy the land from? Chaldeans. The, the Babylonians. He's got to buy this from the Babylonians. And God says, oh, by the way, uh, get a witness. Why does God tell him that? Everything has to be it's it's got to be confirmed. You know, get the notary public to stamp their stamp on there and get this thing bought. Why does he have him do this? He has him do this because God is saying, you're going to get this land back. It's going to be yours. It's going to be yours. And not only is it going to be yours, you're going to be able to prove it's yours. We see in this passage, you can see in the prayer. I love this prayer. The greatness of God and his goodness. And when you're studying theology proper, that's what we want to look at. We want to look at what are the great things of God? He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He's creator. But he's, he's also transmitted some things to us in the fact that he's so good to us. I mean, one, he gives us air to breathe. Two, he gives us food to eat. He gave us a savior. He gave us his word that we can live by. These are things that we see given by God to us. Those are his goodness. So we see greatness and goodness. I love that prayer. Okay. Um, covenants. If you would um, turn with me to chapter 30. And I love this part, too. This is this got really exciting for me. For you guys that, you know, you study the word and you're, you're just kind of studying along. And you go, this is the cool stuff. And uh, I'll be honest with you, I got I got lost in this for a while because it's like this is really cool. And uh, I think Lisa enjoyed it, too, because she was hearing me go through all this stuff. So um, if you look at chapter 30 and. Oh, yeah. We got time. We're just going to read chapter 30. All right. The word of the Lord, or the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write in a book 
all the words that I've spoken to you. For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah says the Lord, and I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. These are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. Thus says the Lord, we have heard a cry of panic, of terror, and no peace, and ask now and see, can a man bear a child? Why then do I see every man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? Why has every face turned pale? Alas, the day is so great, there is none like it. It is a time of distress of Jacob, yet he shall be saved out of it. And it shall come to pass in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break the yoke off your necks, and it will burst your bonds, and foreigners shall no more make a servant of him. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up. Then fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from far away and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease and none shall make him afraid. For I am with you to save you, declares the Lord. I will make a full end of all nations among whom I scattered you. But you, I will ma not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure. And I will by no means leave you unpunished. For thus says the Lord, your hurt is incurable, your wound is grievous. There is none to uphold your cause, no med medicine for your wound, no healing for you. All your lovers have forgotten you, they care nothing for you. For I have dealt with you the blow of an enemy, the punishment of merciless foe, because, of your, because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant. Why do you cry out over your hurt? Your pain is incurable. Because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant, I have done these things to you. Therefore, all who devour you shall be devoured, and all your foes, every one of them, shall go into captivity. Those who plunder you shall be plundered, and all who prey on you will make a prey. For I will restore health to you, and your wounds I will heal, declares the Lord, because they have called you an outcast. It is Zion for whom no one cares. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwellings. The city shall be rebuilt on its mound and the place shall stand where it used to be. Out of them shall, uh, shall come songs of thanksgiving and the voices of those who celebrate. I will multiply them, and they shall not be few. I will make them honored, and they shall not be small. Their children shall be as were of old, and their congregation shall be established before me, and I will punish all who oppress them. Their prince shall be one of themselves. Their ruler shall come out from their midst. I will make him draw near, and he shall approach me. For who would dare of himself to approach me? declares the Lord. 
and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Behold, the storm of the Lord, wrath has gone forth a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intentions of his mind. In the latter days, you will understand this. Now, what's beautiful in this chapter and in chapter 31 is in verse 3, if we see that verse, it says, For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, us both, and I'll bring them back to the land that I gave their fathers. Who were their fathers that he gave the land to? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What covenant did he make? The Abrahamic covenant. If we look at 5 through 8, I won't read it again, but you can see, you can stay if you obey. What covenant's that? The Mosaic covenant. If you look at Jeremiah 30, verse 9, you can see that um, I'm going to break the yokes. And also we see that he's going to set his King David. And you look at that, it's the Davidic covenant. And then if you turn to chapter 31, and this is a great passage, right? But uh, basically it's about the new covenant. And I will write on their heart the law. Okay? And we can see that Jeremiah covers all the covenants. And it's the new covenant that fulfills them all. Now, we know that the Abrahamic covenant was a unilateral agreement. It was not a bilateral. In other words, there was no condition to Abraham. It was, I'm giving you this, this land. You're going to get it. Okay? That's how it was. But the Mosaic and the Davidic actually were bilateral. If you do this, if you do that. The new covenant... Once again, unilateral. It speaks to God choosing. It speaks about the fact that God is sovereign. I will write the law on their hearts. It's not about us writing God's law on our heart. It's about God writing God's law on our heart. And what verse is that, Mike? Um, that is the writing of God's law on our heart is out of chapter 31. 31 to 34. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. My notes missed it, so forgive me. Um, there's so many other stories, guys, that are just amazing, right? That you could look at the story of the figs. Uh, you could look at this story of uh, get into the uh, potter and the house of the potter. It just They're just beautiful. Let's look at the comparisons between Jeremiah and Jesus. Really interesting. Similar historical setting, right? into a land that was being conquered by others or had been, right? Jesus lived in the, uh, actually, Israel area. That's where Nazareth is. Uh, Jerusalem was about to fall, right? Jeremiah's Jerusalem was about to fall. So was Jesus's in 70 AD. Temple would soon be destroyed. Temple after Jeremiah was destroyed. Herod's temple after Christ was destroyed. Uh, formalism and worship. In other words, they didn't worship God with the heart. They just outward tried. Both had a message for the people they love. 
both wept over Jerusalem. You can see that in Luke 19.41, that really long verse. Uh, both condemned the commercialization of the temple. That's Jeremiah 7.11, against, contrasted against Matthew 21.13. Uh, both were accused of political treason. Both were tried, persecuted, and imprisoned. Both foretold the temple's destruction. Both were rejected by their people. Both were tender-hearted. Both knew loneliness. And both enjoyed an unusual fellowship with God. I thought that was interesting. There are several things there that they have in common. Um, my last thing to wrap up with, if I can find it in my notes here, right here. Um, I, I just, I've really come to enjoy Professor Essex and his teaching, so thank you, Travis. <laughs> um, but at the end, he got on it. <laughs> I mean, he's giving you the historical view of Isaiah, and it, it's, it's quite lengthy, his lectures are. so. But at the end, he wrapped it up, and he said, men, if you're going to preach on the uh, book of Jeremiah, be prepared, right? Because he said, be prepared. There's less commentaries and less articles on Jeremiah than any other book in the Bible. Do you know that? Uh, why is that? Even Protestants ignore Jeremiah. Okay? He said, this, is his, this was his, what he postulated, right? He said, he says, I don't think uh, Protestants like the message. They don't like the message. In other words, shape up or ship out. He said that, you know, Protestant movement was on fire. It's changing the world. But we've kind of lost a little bit of that, that desire for holiness, not for righteous living and the fact that it saves you, but for the fact that it's repentance that brings holiness. And, and you see that, you know, it, we've lost that disciplined view. This is a book of just judgment, but it is a book of restoration. Okay, Isaiah, uh, uh, Josh and Gary just covered this. Isaiah, what is it? One third of the book is restoration or future eschatology of, of, of the... 40 to 66. Yeah, so you got one third of the whole book. Not in Jeremiah, you get four chapters. <laughs> Maybe three and a half if the way you count it. Okay? Not as much. Maybe 15%? Maybe that's a reason. Uh... If we're going to preach on this, we need to understand our own sinfulness. This was a conviction that Jeremiah brought me. Well, man, what do I prostitute myself with? What are idols in my life that I place in front of God? Um, you know, the other thing that he went off about is the fact that churches are too concerned with new paint, new carpet, and do we have the lights set right? And less concerned about what's your heart and are you saved? You know, we live in a world today where people don't come to fact with the fact with to grip with the fact that sin is in their life and it's dominating them. And they need they need folks to speak the truth, to be forthright. That's what Jeremiah brings. So, guys, if you would pray with me, thank you so much for tonight. Father God, we just uh, praise you for the book of Jeremiah. I praise you for the, the life of Jeremiah, the man that you created God and placed at your time you wanted him and called him out at the exact time. How he brought the 
cry of repentance and coming destruction when the nation was actually doing quite well under Josiah. You gave them time to hear it before it went evil. And God, you continued his preaching late in his life. And God, we praise you for that, that he's an example to all of us. And Lord, we look forward to the day that we meet Jeremiah face to face with the other saints and all of the ones mentioned in the scripture and all of our fellow believers, God, one day. It's the hope that we have as Christians that we know we will live forever in your presence. And God, we look forward to that day of full redemption, full restoration, and we praise you for it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.